Guests and members of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago to the 217th regular meeting of this group. Now, tonight, as we turn to our speaker, Dr. Kaufman of the University of Wisconsin, who is going to speak to us on the Civil War career of Captain Thomas H. Hines. Dr. Kaufman is, was, has his hometown only about 75 miles from Captain Hines' hometown there in Kentucky. He, as I sat up here and discussed with him tonight, has a great many um, acquaintanceships with people who knew Hines, knew of him down in the area. He did his graduate work at the University of Kentucky, and taught in Memphis, and has also been with the Marshall Foundation in Washington, D.C. The last two or three years up at the University of Wisconsin teaching U.S. military history. He is also currently working on a biography of General Peyton March, uh, Army Chief of Staff of World War One. And now I want to give you Dr. Kaufman, who's going to tell us something about the very interesting career of this very unusual man, Dr. Kaufman. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Since the Civil War was overcrowded with generals, or at least it seems that way, it might seem odd that I'm going to talk about a captain. However, I'm sure that most of you are aware that Captain Thomas Henry, T. Henry Hines, as he called himself at the time, Provisional Army of the Confederate States, was a most unusual company grade officer. Now, Hines' most important part in the Civil War, his most important role was the part he played as military leader of the Northwestern Conspiracy. However, I'm going to concentrate on a perhaps as daring an exploit and one that carried, and since I'm from the South, I tend to emphasize that part of the war, the part up through Chancellorsville. The uh, prison escape from the Ohio State Penitentiary, where he and five other officers, five other captains, and John Hunt Morgan broke away. However, before that, I'm going to sketch in uh, his experiences in the early part of the war, and then I will briefly touch on his experiences after the prison break. Hines was from Butler County, Kentucky. This is the western part of the state near Bowling Green. When the war began, he was only 22 years old. He was born in uh, October of 1838, and he was teaching science and mathematics in a short-lived school, the Masonic University of LaGrange, Kentucky. Physically, he wasn't very impressive. He was a very slight build, and in truth, he wasn't in very good health. He would die before his 60th birthday. At the time of the war, he was around five feet nine and weighed only 140 pounds. A rather quiet, withdrawn, introverted man. He was the last person in the world you would expect to be the, the very tough individual he turns out to be. However, he was very athletic, and he did have a great deal of endurance, all of which he would need. He was also a very intelligent man, a very cool person, and a very alert person, as we will see as the time goes on. Well, when the war came, Hines County was predominantly Union in sentiment. However, he and his father, who ran a little country store there, were Confederate. I once traced the election in the period, the election of 1860, and I think there were only six votes in the whole area uh, for Breckenridge in that particular county, and uh, Hines and his father were two of those six votes, so they were greatly outnumbered. Well, 
when the war began and Kentucky split up and uh, the Confederate forces moved into the southern part of the state, Hines formed a group called Buckner's Guides, for obvious reasons, Simon Bolivar Buckner. And since there was a large contingent of the Confederate Army at Bowling Green, and Hines' home was only a few miles from Bowling Green, Hines used these people uh, as scouts to run reconnaissance uh, missions and so on for the main body of the Army. It's interesting uh, in this respect, I'll mention briefly one incident that took place at the turn of the new year, 1862, Hines took some 12 people and went some 40 miles deep into Union territory to uh, capture a position. He captured the position, shot and killed a couple of northern soldiers, burned the stores, and got back without a scratch, without losing a man either. For this, he was commended in orders. This is the first official recognition he gets. Well, as the Confederate Army pulled back after Donelson, Hines is without a job. Since they're not in the southern part of Kentucky, around Bowling Green, there's no need for scouts uh, in that area. So Hines is, or Hines' unit, the Buckner guys, is demobilized, and Hines becomes a private. It's very difficult to find out what happened to him, actually, for a couple of months there, following the Battle of Fort Donelson. The next time he shows up is in June, 1862. And this time, he wanders off alone into Kentucky. He just goes riding off into Kentucky sees his girlfriend, sees his father, finally runs into two other friends of his, and they start waiting for Morgan and eventually meet Morgan, and there he joins the Morgan Command. Actually, he joins the uh, uh, unit of WCP Breckenridge, Billy Breckenridge, and uh, becomes a private, takes part in the raid in the fall of 1862, and then he forms a company in Breckenridge's battalion, Company C, Breckenridge's battalion. This is later Company E, 9th Kentucky Cavalry. It's interesting here, virtually every man in the company was a Hines. His first lieutenant was E.L. Hines, whose son has become rather famous in recent years, running around recommending restaurants and whatnot, Duncan. Well, <laughs> Hines led this company throughout the rest of this, this raid and doing the famous Christmas raid of that year. Now. In February of 1863, Hines will go on two raids, which are very interesting. Again, I'm going to briefly uh, touch on them. One is in February when he took 14 men, went off into Kentucky, roamed around, burned a railroad depot, captured a steamboat, captured a railroad train. He thought Andrew Johnson was on it, and he captured it and hauled out all the passengers and found out that Johnson wasn't among them. And then rode back into Confederate lines. This time, he didn't lose but one man, and this man wasn't uh, lost in enemy action. He drowned as they were uh, crossing a flooded stream when they were almost within their own uh, lines. Again, Morgan recommended uh, uh, or commended Hines for his exploit. So Hines is making quite a reputation for leading these small units behind uh, Union lines. Morgan's command being rather unorthodox in character, a month or so later, Morgan uh, put Hines in command of a convalescent camp. And they were supposed to bring in people in Morgan's command to convalesce from the wars, and also they were supposed to collect new people, and in addition to that, get horses and this sort of thing. The unusual thing about this is this convalescent camp was some 40 or 50 miles deep into Union lines. Well, Morgan sent Hines up to this place, Albany, Kentucky, and while Hines was there, 
Evidently on his own, there is some debate about this, I'll go into this later, but evidently on his own, Hines decided to go off and start reconnoitering to the north, pretty far to the north, Indiana. And he takes some um, uh, 80 people, 60 or 80 people, and goes off. His second in command, a man named John M. Porter, who would later be his law partner following the war, uh, wrote his memoirs, and he commented at this point, we started on a scout with the design of crossing the Ohio and raising a row in Indiana. And he added thoughtfully, the row was raised and most of us were raised also. Well, Hines goes off in June 18 and 63. First thing he does, runs into a large federal force, and Porter, among the others, is captured, among about half the commands, captured, uh, after they'd been gone just a few days or so. Hines keeps on, crosses into Indiana, uh, disguises himself or tells the natives that his command is a part of the Indiana Grays, a militia unit. They proceed to requisition horses as they need them, giving the, the farmers requisitions on the quartermaster of Indiana. And they spend several days in the area. And finally, uh, some of the people begin to get suspicious. I suppose perhaps they get in touch with, with Indianapolis and try to find out who the Indiana uh, Grays are. And then Hines and his command, which has dwindled down to a very small number by this time, start actually fighting Indiana militia. And as one of the members of the group, virtually everyone you'll run into associated with Hines, is named Hines, Corporal H.C. Hines, uh, recalled, we were short of ammunition, and since we all expected to be captured anyway, we knew if we wantonly killed anyone, it would go hard with us. So when they ran across the militia, they just make faces at them and scare them to death, because most of the people in this area were scared to death of them anyway, and they would take their weapons away from them and break them and go on. Well, finally, they were caught as they got to the Ohio River, and uh, some of them stayed and fought a rear guard action. Hines, with about 10 or 12, did get away and uh, uh, rode across the river, escaped, he told this group to break up. They did break up. Uh, they got back together again and captured another train. And then Hines heard that Morgan was coming and rode in on the morning of July the 8th to Brandenburg, Kentucky, where he was waiting for Morgan's command when they arrived. As Basil Duke described him in his uh, uh, History of Morgan's Cavalry, we found him leaning against the side of the wharf boat with sleepy, melancholy look, apparently the most listless, inoffensive youth that was ever imposed upon. I do not know what explanation he made General Morgan of the lively manner in which he had acted under his order, but it seemed to be perfectly satisfactory. Of course, Morgan would actually have very little room to criticize him anyway, since he was exceeding his instructions somewhat by uh, going beyond the Ohio. Well, I'm going, there's been a controversy about this, and I'm going to talk about the Copperhead episode later. Morgan named Hines, at this point, second in command of the advance guard. The advance guard was under his brother, Dick Morgan. Everybody else in the Morgan command's name was Morgan. And uh, <laughs> they proceed to go on that wild ride through uh, Indiana and Ohio. The next 10 days, they ride up to 21 hours a day. They fight militia. It's a very hard, grueling sort of war. And eventually, um, on the Sunday morning, the 19th of July at Buffington's Island, the bulk of Morgan's command is trapped, and Hines, among others, surrenders. Morgan, of course, will, will uh, get away at this point to be captured a few days later. Well, 
Then Hines' tour as a captive begins. As the Federal pursuit columns hurried on after Morgan and the remnant of his command, the raiders captured at Buffington were left under guard to await transports. Some of the grimy Confederates requested permission to, to bathe in the Ohio since it had been some 10 days and they'd had a lot of hard riding since they'd had their last bath when they'd crossed the Ohio before. And so they proceeded to dive in and splash each other and horse around and this sort of thing. And at this point, there's one veteran of the, of the command who later wrote his memoirs some 20 or 30 years later in one of the Ohio history magazines commented that he talked with Hines and asked him for a, a souvenir or something because he'd heard a great deal about him. Hines was one of the most famous uh, people in the unit. He was already known as the notorious Captain Hines. Now, as soon as possible after their capture, these people were picked up by four steamers and taken to Cincinnati. And when they arrived there some three days later, they received a rather ominous ovation. One of the officers remembered, a man who later became governor of Kentucky, James B. McCrary, remembered and wrote, quote, with double guard on each side of us, we marched through an immense crowd which cursed and hissed us, and some seemed cowardly enough to wish to strike us, end of quote. The enlisted men then were loaded on trains and shipped off either to, to um, uh, Camp Morton, the prison camp in Indiana, or Camp Douglas here in Chicago, but the officers were housed in the city jail for a few days, another rather ominous portent. While in prison here, they were joined by others captured after them, and they were keeping up with Morgan's uh, continuing raid uh, vicariously. And on their last day in Cincinnati, they found out that Morgan had been captured at East Liverpool. Well, they are then loaded on trains and shipped off to Johnson's Island near Sandusky, Ohio, which was an officer's prison. And every town they passed through, the people came out to look at them. Actually, um, when you consider experiences of people in Korea, it's much the same thing. These people were virtually in a cage, and everyone would come out and look at them, just as when they took our troops prisoner over there, they'd parade them in for all the North Koreans to see them. They'd stayed at uh, uh, Johnson's Island just a few days, and then they received another rather disappointing message. They were to be transferred to the Ohio State Prison in Columbus. Now, the ostensible reason for this was that these people were considered criminals for carrying out this invasion of Ohio. Uh, the state of Ohio had gone to a great deal of expense over this thing. I did know, I don't think I have it in my notes here, exactly how much money. Well, I have here that a uh, million dollars in damage claims were submitted to the state, and they were going to take it out of these people's hides. Incidentally, one of the interesting things about the damage claims that caught my fancy is the sort of thing people were putting in that they had lost in the uh, Morgan raid. One man put in a uh, claim for $10 for a set of teeth he lost. Another man put in a claim for $2 and a half for a copy of J.R.C. Brown's History of the Rebellion. Now, I could understand why any toothless Confederate could have used a set of teeth that he jerked out of some militiaman's mouth, and possibly he would want to read uh, the Yankee version of the uh, uh, war. However, what I can't understand is the soul who put in damage claims for 26 plows. I have yet to understand how Morgan's column could have used the plows. But at any rate, they put in claims for these. Also, there were some 50,000 people who had been called up for militia duty and had to be paid and so on. Well, the officers arrived at Columbus on August the 1st and were escorted to the prison. Before they were permitted within the main prison, they were inspected for contraband articles naturally, such as knives and money. 
two convicts then scrub them down in large hogsheads of water, the same water for all, and then their beards and mustaches were shaved off and their hair clipped. Then they were permitted to go in and see their new home. Incidentally, one of the first people they ran into was Morgan and uh, the people captured with him, and they didn't know Morgan at first, because uh, who's ever seen a general in the Civil War without a beard? and with short hair, and they didn't know who he was. They thought he was just another convict coming up talking to them in a familiar tone. But they were in prison in the east wing of the penitentiary in small cells, and uh, there they were. After an outdoors life for the past few years, they found it very difficult to become used to the, the closeness and the routine of the prison. Every day, of course, was much like the day before. They were awakened before 6 o'clock. At 7 o'clock, they were marched to breakfast, Incidentally, the food served them was better than the average convict fare. Why this, I don't know, but according to uh, uh, accounts, they actually received better food. Then convicts would come and sweep out their cells. Now, why this, I don't know. They did get some special uh, treatment. Then uh, they were allowed the freedom of the cell block in the morning, but soldiers, of course, would stand guard at each end. And uh, they were marched to another meal in the afternoon. Then they had another hour or so of freedom in the cell block before they were locked in for the night. Then at night, three inspections were made. Uh, I've read various accounts, but uh, this one comes from um, the official records. Uh, at 11, at 2, and at 4 during the night. And in these inspections, a guard would go by with a lantern and he'd throw the light of the lantern into the cell to make sure the man was there. Now. As I said, these people did get certain advantages. The convicts swept out their cells. They also did get uh, a little bit better food than the other people. In addition to this, they were allowed to buy small luxury items and books. They could write letters. The letters were taken out and so on. They played chess with a great deal of enthusiasm. and. As one of them said, they would argue questions of trivial import at great length. Hines and a few of the others decided to improve their education and started reading. Uh, he and Thomas Bullitt, as a matter of fact, started reading together Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, and Hines also started learning French with one of the other people. Now, meantime, Hines was establishing secret correspondence with friends in the South by use of a of a, of, a, of a perforated piece of paper. This is one of the astonishing things to me how in the world he ever got that out of there. But in the Hines collection at the University of Kentucky, there is this sheet of paper in which he explains how you use it. Simply, a, a, you've seen these old letters, you know, where they'd have a fold in the middle, right on one side and on the inside. Well, this one had uh, holes cut out of the side. And Hines explained, you put this on any letter I write, and then the words that I actually want you to know, uh, the message, will uh, uh, be read in this manner. Well, this was a very crude sort of, uh, of uh, code, but the amazing thing is evidently it got out and evidently it was used. Well, Hans and his comrades naturally thought constantly of means of escape, although it looked as if it would be impossible. This was supposed to be one of the better prisons of the time, escape-proof, as you hear about every prison immediately after someone escapes. Well, Hines claims that he was determined to escape after he had been rudely awakened by deputy, or uh, rudely treated by deputy warden in late October. And so his story goes, 
excuse me, he stayed in his cell racking his brains for a possible escape plan. They'd just been talking about it before, but now he's really thinking seriously about this thing. He had just finished reading Victor Hugo's book, Les Miserables, and his mind uh, toyed with the idea of a subterranean passage. And he started looking around and noticing things, and he noticed that the floor to his cell was dry and free from mold. So he assumed that there must be a passage under his cell of some sort of an air passage. He mentioned this to a few people, and they started digging in the rear of his cell with knives that they had stolen from the hospital. Now, they're going to have several problems at this point, namely preventing convicts from coming in, the convicts who had been sweeping the cells to find out what was going on, and also uh, covering up uh, people who were actually doing the work there. Well, Hines, sometime before the digging actually started, began sweeping his own uh, cell, and then when the uh, 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 guard passed anyway, he would only cursorily uh, glance in, because generally guards never assume this is going to happen anyway. After the hole was actually started, they had a hand satchel, which they covered it, and uh, Hines started talking to the other people, and eventually General Morgan and five other captains were included in the plan. And uh, these men would actually make the escape. They, they told other people, as far as I know, virtually all of them knew that it was going to happen. But finally, and this seems to be the great, uh, uh, the crucial point, in November, early November, there was a change in authority over these people. The army sent a steward, who's a rather mysterious character, Sergeant Moon, and he was given responsibility for the prisoners of war, evidently. However, what his duties were weren't exactly clear to him, and evidently not exactly clear to the prison authorities. Much has been made of this, incidentally, by people who love to think in the terms of a conspiracy and uh, so on. However, I think anyone who's ever been in the service is well aware that this is something that happens frequently. You're told to go out and do something and by the time you get out there and actually start, you, you realize that you don't really understand what you're supposed to be doing and you have a strong suspicion that whoever told you to do that didn't understand it either. And this was one of those situations where they sent this sergeant out there and said, take over these prisoners of war who are in the state penitentiary. Well, there, there are several questions about what are they doing there, why, and so on. Well, thinking that the Army was going to accept full responsibility for uh, uh, keeping these people, the prison authorities relaxed their own control of these people, excuse me, <coughs> well, Sergeant Moon evidently assumed that his responsibility was to act more or less as liaison with these people, with the prisoners. And when, as the, the prison authorities relaxed their uh, responsibility, Moon didn't pick it up. So there's a period there where the discipline, the whole thing becomes very lax as far as the prisoners are concerned. And according to all records, work in earnest actually starts when Moon comes in, in this uh, uh, twilight period. Well, here's how they would work. The officers would roam the cell block as they had before doing their free period, and as they would do this, one or two would slip off and go in and work in Hines' cell. Mean, meanwhile, someone, uh, usually Hines, would sit at the, the entrance reading his gibbon or, or studying French or whatnot. And of course, if he would see anyone coming, he would signal to them to 
uh, stop their work. And also he would keep watch on the guards to see that uh, they weren't noticing anyone missing and they would just run these people in for 30 minutes or an hour at a time so they wouldn't be gone too long. And after chipping away for some time through some 26 inches of cement and bricks, they eventually hit the air chamber under this first range of cells. And when they found it, they also found, as they widened the hole and could send someone down there, that it was big enough to actually move around in. Now, they sent some soul down there, and he hunted and hunted, and he found the entrance to the air chamber, the uh, ventilator entrance, which was leading up above ground, but unfortunately it was under a big coal pile. So they couldn't use that, and they figured they'd have to dig on out, tunnel on out, and try either for under the wall or a place near the wall. Well, Hines, meantime, was particularly relieved at the time they hit the air chamber because he had been sleeping on the debris all of this while. They would take this, the, this chip cement and uh, the chip bricks and put them in his mattress. So uh, he hadn't been getting much sleep for the past uh, few days. However, at the same time they find the air chamber, they have an additional problem. If people are going to go down there and work, how are they going to get in touch with them? How are they going to work this thing? After all, the prison, uh, the prison guard might ask to see so-and-so, and so-and-so -so would be some feet underground. So this uh, led to several embarrassing situations. At one time, one guard actually did uh, call, uh, call for someone, and they, they managed to cover up for him, get someone down to him. But another time, one man forgot how long he'd stayed under there and forgot to come up for a meal. But again, the prison guards evidently were completely unsuspecting and they were able to, to continue this. Once they actually had to do digging, they ran across a spade out in the yard as they were uh, taking their exercise, and they staged a free-for-all, and the man on the bottom stuffed it under his shirt and walked straight-legged or straight-back for a period until he could get back in the cell, and then they had this spade. Well, for the latter part of November, they did have a tunnel from the air chamber on to within a few feet of the, the uh, uh, wall. At this point, Morgan bought a newspaper from a convict and learned the train schedules, and they picked up various other pieces of information that they would need in this manner. To settle an argument with one of the guards, they set up an argument on exactly uh, how agile one of these people was. So Captain Taylor, who was a distant relative of Zachary Taylor, climbed up to a precarious perch, frankly shinnied up the wall of the thing to get a good look over the outside, and, and so he could see not only the prison yard, but the walls uh, beyond. Hines argued with another guard over the dimensions of the cell block, and so the guard brought in a tape measure, and they proceeded to measure the whole thing. And as they did this, Hines was, caref Hines was carefully noticing exactly when they'd reach a certain point in each cell so they could go up uh, from the air chamber and dig this out. So at the night when the escape would be made, all the man would have to do is just uh, push this and it would go through and he could get into the uh, uh, chamber. Well, once they had completed this, they had to wait for the proper weather. Well, the latter part of November, it was a rainy night, Hines noticed clouds in the skies and he passed the word along to the others that now was the night. Now, out of the group of prisoners, the only one who wasn't on the first uh, range was Morgan. The six captains were, but Morgan was on the second range. And he exchanged cells with his brother, Dick, who had the cell next to, to uh, Hines. I might add here, I ran across something very interesting in this regard. 
as you of course know, the people in the Civil War were, were a very sentimental lot. And also, they would do things that people just don't do anymore. And they would permit things that people just don't do anymore. And evidently, while these people were in prison, they started exchanging autograph albums. And they'd go around and collect everybody's autograph. And uh, each man would write his name in, uh, Colonel Basil W. Duke, uh, sell such and so, second range, east wing, something like this. So uh, I had run across two of these uh, autograph albums kept by the prisoners at Ohio, uh, at the Ohio prison. And in each one, you can locate them in cells. You can tell exactly where they were because they had the cell number uh, in there. Well, around the hour of midnight, the men broke through the thin crust of cement and entered the air chamber. The guards had done what guards always do when it rains. They get under cover. And so Hines and his comrades were able to go out, get under this tunnel, get near the wall. They had rope made from strips of cloth with a poker on the end, which they threw over. They got over it, uh, followed an adjacent wall to the higher outside wall, reached the deserted sentry box out there, changed their soiled garments, and then jumped on over into freedom. Hines left a little note that they had commenced November the 4th, and they had finished November the 24th, and told how many hours it took, and so on. Now, as you undoubtedly know, there's been a great deal of controversy. The whole thing seems fantastic, of course, that they could do this. But then again, when you stop and think, have you ever heard of a prison escape that didn't seem fantastic? Also, there are many points that you could think of, like, uh, well, maybe Moon was bribed. Maybe he actually just opened the doors for them. However, the interesting point, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most damning points was, I think Swigert brings this up in his book on Morgan, and when he goes into prison escape, that a prison warden made the statement that he couldn't find the tunnel, so that the whole tunnel story was a ruse made up by these people to protect the people who had helped them. However, I checked on that prison warden, and I found the story. The prison warden who made the statement that he couldn't find the tunnel was the man who took over as prison warden in 1913. And at that time, he made the statement that he couldn't find the tunnel. And of course, my reaction was I would imagine they would have filled it in after 50 years. <laughs> and if they hadn't, probably just the dirt would have filled it in after that period. So I actually believe that they did escape. And that they, obviously, that some bribery took place. They did get certain items. But uh, I don't think there was simply any opening of cell doors uh, letting them out. And there are other uh, uh, things about this that seem rather unusual. For one thing, I'm, I'm going to go on and tell about Hines' experiences. This isn't the end of it by a long shot once he gets out. But uh, Hines kept a careful uh, listing of everyone who helped him. Now this is another example of things you don't do in Secret Service work now. At least we hope that people don't do this. But he kept a careful listing that as it would take him some time to reach Confederate lines. And he'd say, I stayed at, at Mrs. W. W. Browning's or something like that in LaGrange, Kentucky. And then I went from there to so-and-so. And I stayed there. And he'd carefully put their names in. Well, if he's going to put all of these people in, after all, they would be subject to just as much punishment from the uh, Federals as would people who helped them to actually get out of the prison. So if he's going to put all this, why not put people there? But he doesn't. He just has the, has the people who helped him as he went through. He kept a little black book with all these people's names in it. Well, <coughs> excuse me, another factor is that all of these stories mesh. 
Hines told, told the story, several others tell the story. I think every prisoner actually wrote an account of it, or everyone who escaped wrote an account. I've forgotten, maybe one or two didn't. But uh, all of these accounts mesh with one difference. Uh, one man, a bricklayer, his name slips me, uh, Hockersmith. Hockersmith says that he thought it up. And I think Taylor supports him in this. One of the other captains supports him. They all agree to the fundamental story I've just told. The only difference is four of them, or five of them, say that Hines thought it up, including Hines, and two others say that no Hockersmith caught it up, but they agree, uh, thought it up, but they agree that this is actually what happened. Well, once they get out of the prison yard, they divide up into pairs, and Hines and Morgan pair it off together, and they go toward the railroad station. A couple of others, Ralph Shelton and Sam Taylor, decided to remain in the city for a day or so in order to confuse pursuit. Hockersmith and J.C. Bennett went to the depot also, and one man, Gustavus McGee, travels alone. Well, the, the train to Cincinnati was due to leave around 1 o'clock. Hines goes in and buys two tickets, and he and Morgan get on the train, and then there's that famous incident. Morgan sits by a Union Army officer, and as they pass by the prison, they start chatting about things, and uh, the officer turns to him and says, well, uh, I hear that's where they've got the rebel scoundrel Morgan. And Morgan says, yes, and I hope they keep him just as safe as he is right now. And uh, they chit-chat back and forth the rest of the night. Well, they reach uh, Cincinnati, or they hope to reach Cincinnati, before the alarm is out. However, the train was delayed for an hour in Dayton, so they decide, rather than simply getting off at uh, uh, the Cincinnati station, that they would jump off the train before they go in the city, which they do. They make their way uh, to the river and then start on into the south. Back at the prison, meantime, the, pr the guards have, have noted at the morning inspection that some prisoners are missing. They had made dummies to leave in their, their uh, uh, beds. So when the uh, guards glanced in, made the nightly inspections, they thought someone was there. And uh, at this point even, they thought Morgan was still there because they could see there was a real live body in Morgan's cell, but it happened to be his brother. But they had that confused for a while. At once they sent out wires to police chiefs of, of several cities to be on lookout and offered a reward for $1,000 for Morgan. You've probably seen some of these uh, uh, flyers that they put out at that time. The officials were particularly shocked that uh, people could get away from escape-proof prisons, as officials are always shocked when it happens. They ordered an inspection. The governor ordered an inspection, and it was begun within two days. And this report blames the escape on the lack of clear orders to the warden and to the army personnel, in other words, to this dual uh, authority. And they pointed out that this resulted in lax vigilance and that the prisoners were able to pull something off because of this. The army also investigated the escape, and they came to similar conclusions, and I quote from the official records, it is plain that from the loose arrangements between the prison authorities and the military commander resulted a divided and undefined responsibility, and then naturally followed a relaxation of vigilance, which the prisoners had the, the uh, address to turn to their own account. Well, Hines and Morgan are trying to get across the, uh, the Ohio River and on down into Confederate lines. They pick up a boat, get across the river, they go from place to place through Kentucky and Tennessee, passing themselves off as horse traders and horse buyers, from time to time, they will run across remnants of the Morgan Command. They pick up three or four people, and <coughs> excuse me, at Bardstown, Kentucky. And finally, on December the 7th, they come to the Cumberland River near Burksville. Well, when they get into this area, 
they spend the evening with a, or spend the night with a Union soldier, and they tell him that again they're looking for, for uh, uh, horses and so on. But they also hear that there's a large group of federal troops in the area. At the same time, they hear that there's a large group of Morgan's command in the area, just stragglers. Well, Morgan argues that he wants to wait there and collect these people to take them back with him. Hines objects for two reasons. After all, they're fairly hot people. And in the second reason, if they grab some 30 or 40 of these people, this sort of column would attract a great deal of attention. Even the six, I think, at that point, Hines and Morgan and four others, were, were quite a little troop. But if they would wait and get all of these people, they were liable to really create some trouble. However, Morgan is a brigadier general, Hines a captain, so they wait. Well, they wait for four days, and they collect some 40 people. Then they get ready to cross the Tennessee River at Bridges Ferry. They get down there, and uh, they know Union troops are in the area. And as a matter of fact, just as they're in their process of crossing the river, one of the Union patrols comes up. Hines tells Morgan, go ahead and get away, and I'll lead these people off your trail. Well, Morgan hides in a ravine with several of these people. Hines uh, gallops off and yelling at the top of his voice, hurry up or Morgan will get away. The rebels will escape. Well, the column immediately follows him just like a western leaving Morgan and these other people huddled in the ravine. Hines is racing off leading these people in a wild goose chase. And after they ride after him for about a half a mile or so, they come to a creek bank and uh, as a Union detachment gets there, following him, they see that there are only uh, one set of hoof prints, Hines' uh, horse. And so they start wondering where in the world more, uh, the rebels are and so on. So they catch up with him, and they ask him who he is, and Hines tells them he's a member of Morgan's command. Well, the major in command of the unit orders one of his men to take a halter from his horse and throw it over a limb, and he says, you have led me off, Morgan. I have a notion to hang you for it. Hines thinks he's joking for a while, but then he realizes that uh, he tries to tell him, no, the man isn't Morgan, and so on. And, and the officer says, yes, I know it because he's been recognized by several other people in the area. And he also says, I would not have missed getting him for $10,000. It would have meant a brigadier's commission to me. I'll hang you for it. Hines sees he's serious, so he starts uh, thinking of uh, some way to get out of this. And he proceeds to appeal to him in this manner. Seems to tell him that I'm a member of Morgan's command. I'm one of Morgan's uh, troopers. Therefore, it wouldn't have been honorable for me to turn Morgan in or to tell you where Morgan is if I had known in the first place that actually I did the only honorable thing I could have done under the circumstances. This being the Civil War, the Major thought it over and agreed with him. And so they took the halter off, jerked the rope from around Hines' neck, and they proceeded to ride off. At this point, Hines gave his name as Bullet. Uh, there was another Morgan captain named Thomas W. Bullock. Uh, he and Hines have been the one uh, reading Gibbon together. And uh, Hines, I don't know whether he did this by mistake or uh, with malice aforethought, was wearing Bullock's underwear with his name written on it. And so he was using Bullock's name. So they go off, right off, back to the uh, uh, Union Detachment's headquarters. And that night, the Union officer takes Morgan to dinner with him. And while they're eating, the officer, they, they walk out of the house. And the officer is with Hines. There are no other guards or anything. Hines is, isn't tied up in any way. 
They're walking out of the house, and the officer all of a sudden remembers that he left his coat or his shawl or something, and he runs back in the house, just leaving Hines, standing there. It's about a half mile from the camp. It's a very dark night. However, Hines decided not to escape. He thought of it, but after all, the officer had done him a fairly honorable deed by not hanging him over there, so he decides not to uh, uh, take advantage of the officer in this matter, so he waits docilely until the officer comes back. However, a few days later, Hines realizes that he's got to escape or he, he'll be taken to one of the, the central prison areas and, and there someone is bound to know him. So, they're marching them to, to Knoxville and by this time several other Confederates have been picked up who had nothing to do with Hines or Morgan. They're just Confederates or Confederate sympathizers in the area. And they're camped at a place near, uh, out in the woods near Luden, uh, Tennessee and the 3rd Kentucky Infantry, Volunteer Infantry, a Union unit, is guarding them in a log hut encampment in the middle of December. And Hines decides that it's now or never, they'll probably get into Knoxville the next day or very shortly. So he decides to escape, and he has these two or three other men in the uh, uh, hut with him. So they work out a plan. He explains the situation to them, more or less that if he doesn't tell them who he is, but he tells them that I am a wanted man and if they find out who I am, it'll really go hard with me. So uh, they might even hang me. So why don't you uh, work this out this way and then I will get away while you're attracting the guards' attention. Well, they, they call the guards in and they start telling them war stories and they edge around the fire. Meantime, Hines slips off toward the door and he gets between the guard and the door. Then at a the proper time, he runs out the door uh, and uh, starts heading for the bushes. He reaches there, lies down in the bush for some uh, four or five hours until dawn, and the, the, the Union forces are, are searching the field around. They can't find him or anything. And then uh, he lays in this field all day long without anything to eat, waits there, and then that nightfall he uh, resumes his journey. And eventually he keeps running into people, and you go up and ask them for aid, and nearly every occasion they're Union sympathizers, but that's all right. He tells them he's a Union sympathizer too, and he's looking for, for horses or he's trying to get away from the Confederates or something. But eventually he gets uh, uh, food and uh, lodging, and even gets horses on route. He probably steals those. But at any rate, he finally reaches Confederate lines on December the 29th, 1863. It had been well over a month since they'd escaped. He'd been given up for dead. Morgan, John Hunt Morgan, had written a letter to Hines' father telling him that uh, your son performed a glorious deed. And knowing him, I'm sure he's bound to get out alive. Don't worry about it. But still, he's missing. Well, when Hines reaches Richmond, he's a hero. After all, he had helped escape. Morgan had told them that Hines had helped him escape and so on. And even though he's a captain, he gets interviews with the Secretary of War, Seden, James A. Seden, and the President. And then, again, Hines says that uh, he, he has been thinking about the idea of releasing Confederate prisoners. If you could only release all Confederate prisoners, or a large number of the Confederate prisoners, in the northern prison camps, that then, uh, the Confederacy would be increased by this many men. It would create a lot of, of disturbances in the old Northwest. And no telling what is liable to result from this. Well, he approaches it from that angle, at least in his memoirs. However, Davis and the other Confederate leaders had been thinking about the possibilities of luring Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois into the Confederate camp, or at least to their aid, for some time. 
So Heinz comes up with this idea, and these other people are interested, so they talk it over. And, <coughs> excuse me, Heinz is given the mission of being the military commander of this, what came to be known as a Northwestern conspiracy. Now, here is where we run into the, the Copperheads. The Copperheads would take up about a book in themselves. I'm going to talk about them very briefly. They are simply people who were Southern sympathizers, or it got to the point that they were, they were anyone you didn't like in the area. Just uh, today, someone, if you don't like someone, just uh, jump up and call him a communist and sit down and watch what happens. Well, then, that was the way Copperhead was used. If you didn't like anyone, just call them a Copperhead and sit down and watch them get beaten up or cheered in some sections. And this was happening in portions of Indiana, Illinois, and Ohio. There has been a lot of talk about a conspiracy that Morgan's raid was an attempt to, to link up with the Copperheads. Morgan prided himself and would later say that if this was the case, our men stole just as uh, much from the Copperheads as they did from anyone else. And again, I haven't been able to find out any link between them. There's some talk that Hines himself had been dealing with Copperheads when he made that raid into Indiana preceding Morgan. This also impresses me as being rather odd because if someone is going on a subversive mission where they're attempting to establish contacts with the uh, people who are uh, with an underground, so to speak, it looks rather odd that they go up there with some 50 or 60 men and start shooting up the neighborhood to call attention to themselves. So I, I've never believed that Hines was actually doing this. Also, his second-in-command obviously knew nothing about it, and there, uh, I have never found anything to substantiate this. I haven't gone through the Secret Service records uh, in Washington, and there might be something in there, although frequent, uh, you can't always tell from informers whether they're really telling you the, the, uh, the uh, truth or not. But I haven't seen that particular source, but from the material that I've examined, I've never found anything that would really link uh, Hines with these people before this time. Well, in March 1864, Hines again slips through Union lines, goes to Canada, and joins up with various escaped Confederate prisoners who had gotten into Canada, and also with a contingent up there. The Confederate government had not only let Hines, who's by this time, what, 24, 25 years old, handle this thing entirely. They had a couple of very distinguished Southern politicians, Jacob Thompson, who had been Secretary of Interior in Buchanan's cabinet, and Clement C. Clay, a former senator from Alabama, to be the, the uh, uh, political leaders of this conspiracy to attempt to talk to the, the uh, uh, Copperhead uh, politicos. Hines didn't particularly like Thompson and Clay, and I'm just as certain they didn't particularly like him. But Hines described these two who were leading this conspiracy. Thompson, in this vein, unluckily, he was inclined to believe much that was told him, trust too many men, doubt too little, and suspect less. He was, of course, often imposed upon, and his subordinates were kept in continual apprehension lest he compromise their efforts by indiscreet confidences. Hardly the man to lead a espionage group. Of Clay, and I'm quoting from an article Hines wrote in 1886, which was published in the uh, Southern Bivouac. Mr. Clay was also a confiding man, but of another description. He gave too much confidence to parties whom he had known previously and under conditions altogether different from those he was required to meet. As a consequence, he was much under the influence of men who were honest, doubtless, but oversanguine and impracticable. Well, these were the two people, such as they were 
who are actually leading the thing, and to add a little force to their personality and previous uh, contacts, they were carrying with them $900,000, and this wasn't in Confederate money. Well, <coughs> excuse me, Hines proceeded to run in and out of the states. He used the, the name Dr. Hunter, T.H. Hunter. And of course, what Hines was mainly concerned with was Camp Douglas. He hoped to release the prisoners there, which I think at this time in 64, number around 7,500. And he wanted to enlist uh, Copperhead support for this. He proceeded to come down. He talked with many of these people. He gave them money for transportation, for arms, ammunition, this sort of thing, gave them a great deal of money, as a matter of fact. These various Copperhead leaders, someone would go up and say, I'm a Copperhead leader. They were formal organizations, Sons of American Liberty, Knights of the Golden Circle, and all of this. And they had wonderful uh, uh, rituals they would go through. There was one I never will forget. They described at great length at the hearings where if you saw someone you thought was a brother member of the club, I think this was Order of American Knights, you would see him and by a special way, I forget what it was, you would motion him over to the side of the road. You had to, I think you either did your hand this way or something like this over your head, made it very obvious that this was a unique thing that you were doing. Then once you got him over in the bushes, you'd walk up to him and you would look him straight in the eye, then you would jerk your earlobe or something like this, and scratch your arm at the same time. And then if he started picking this up and doing the other ear, it was likely that he was a member. And then you would say, it was Calhoun backwards, uh, I think whatever it is, nunk, and he would say lack, and then you'd shake hands and start exchanging secrets. <laughs> I often wondered how many unwary, peop unwary people were uh, accosted on the side of the roads and started going through this. Uh, rigmarole, uh, my first reaction would have been to shot them right off. Well, they had this sort of thing. These various leaders were coming in. They were meeting with Hines, and they'd tell them, I can bring you 500 men. I'll guarantee you 1,000. I'll guarantee you 50, and so on. And evidently, in the early stages, Hines believed them. Then they actually started uh, setting the dates that they would take Douglas. This was summer of 64. At that point, I think there were 1,200 guards. No, there were less than 1,000 guards at Douglas. And uh, every date they set, their first date was the 4th. They set three dates in July, the 4th, the 16th, and the 20th, I think. But every time they'd set a date, they'd get right up to the time that word would come in. Hines had a few hardcore people with him, of course, uh, Confederate prisoners and so on. But every time they would get near the time, uh, they would come in and say, no, we can't do it this time. Let's put it off. Maybe we can do it next week. Well, they'd set it up again. They kept doing this and doing this. And nothing ever happened, really. They scared the northern garrison half to death. Reinforcements did come in. Hines eventually set the date in August. Matter of fact, he set two dates in August. The, Confederate, the Democratic Convention was going to meet here. And they were going to have, uh, they were hoped to stage the break one of those nights because they assumed that a lot of the Peace Democrats would be here, and a lot were, of course. And they hoped to, that they might join in, of course. Again, nothing happened. They set up headquarters in the old Richmond house, which I think was on uh, Lake in Michigan, I'm not sure. 
and they got these people together, they gave them money. I didn't know exactly how much money. Hines kept careful note of how much money he spent. He kept another little black book telling how much money he spent and who he was giving money to. <coughs> Excuse me. But, again, nothing ever happened. The night before the thing, people would come in, well, I just can't get the people. Hines later, in this same article, wrote, Prompt and decisive leadership and a bold policy, suddenly sprung and pressed without hesitation or faltering, might push thousands into open revolt. But the lack of distinct understanding upon the part of these parties of the actual methods which should be pursued, the lack of detail in organization and plan, and above all, the lack of discipline and absolute right to command action, were the weak points in the program, notwithstanding the zeal and spirit of the members. Well, this is one of the main problems. Many of these people are actually interested in doing something. But very few of them are actually what you would call combat-ready people. <laughs> They're local politicians, this, that, and the other. And to see a couple of the, of the toughest customers you would ever run across in the Civil War period, men like Hines and Castleman, uh, company commanders, veterans of Morgan's campaigns and all, uh, obviously th this looked like a fairly flabby uh, lot to them. Also. Uh, these people had something that, uh, very different in mind from what Hines and Castleman had in mind. What Hines wanted to do was release these prisoners and move them south. If possible, pick up other prisoners. I've forgotten. I think there were supposedly some 25,000 prisoners in this area. I might be wrong. There are quite a few, uh, as you include Ohio, the prison camps in, in, in Ohio and Indiana, Chase and Morton and the others. But this is what they were thinking about, springing these prisoners and leading them on south, if possible, link up with Hood for example. Well, the Copperheads were thinking about something else. They were thinking about possibly even withdrawing from the war, perhaps even setting up new governments with them as the leaders in these governments, perhaps even setting up another confederacy, or perhaps joining the, the, uh, the existing confederacy. In other words, it's a rather vague, nebulous thing. As uh, I think it was Mr. Hesseltine once said, the only concrete result of this is evidently a good many Midwestern fortunes had their beginning at this time because these people accepted a lot of money from the Confederates. <laughs> they gave nothing, but they did accept a lot of money. Well, after, after these incidents uh, of failure, and there's another reason too I didn't mention, the Heinz um, organization was almost like the Communist Party. You, you probably read the recent article that the Communist Party, one-eighth of the members are FBI people in the country. <laughs> well, Heinz's group was similar to that. Every other man in Heinz's immediate body was a federal spy. And these people were giving straight information back what was going on. There are all sorts of incidents. And, People, Sweet, uh, who commanded, Colonel Sweet, who commanded the, the guard detachment at uh, um, Douglas, knew as much about what Hines was doing as Hines did himself, because these people were giving him constant information about it. And they, they always knew what he was doing. They knew when it was going to happen. They knew when it didn't come off. And they knew how he was attempting to, to react and solve his problem uh, the next time. Well. Hines stays around in the Chicago area. I think he did go back to Canada, but then came back. And he starts planning one last attempt. This is in November, on Election Day, in early November. This time, Hines is aware of why the other plans had fallen through, that he attempted to have too many people in, that 
when he told them, go do something, they just looked at him and thought, you're an idiot and didn't do it, unlike in the Army, where they'd at least go or try to get out of sight or something. But this time, for the November mission, and he's planning to do exactly the same thing, Storm Douglas, get those people out, he picks one man, one man whom he thinks he can trust, Charlie Walsh. And Walsh gets a few others, and Hines builds around a large core, I've forgotten how many uh, escaped Confederate prisoners he had with him, but he gets these people uh, uh, around. I think altogether he would only have maybe 65 people, I'm not too sure about the number. And then they were going to try it. However, again, uh, virtually every other member of this group is a federal spy. Uh, Sweet knew exactly what they were doing, and if that wasn't enough, uh, one of the Confederate uh, uh, or one of the federal spies gets in, and one of Hines's people tells him everything. Uh, he gets him drunk, and uh, he can hold his liquor better than the Hines man, Shanks, and uh, not Shanks, uh, Buttersworth. And so Shanks finds out everything from Buttersworth. And so when the time comes, the night before it's supposed to happen, there's a um, pickup of all people involved, and there's a fantastic story about Hines was sleeping at uh, some doctor's home, Edwards, I think his name was, and uh, Hines was in this double bed with another Confederate named uh, Marmaduke. And so Edwards comes in and tells Hines the Federals are at the door. They knew exactly where he was. And so Hines looks around, he's trying to think of a place to hide, and this bed is an old, has a box spring. So Hines gets in the box spring under the bed. And so the federal uh, detachment comes in, look around, there's Marmaduke. They wake him up, and he looks around and wonders what happens to Hines. Probably never figures it out until Hines gets in touch with him after the war. And they arrest Marmaduke. Hines hides in this box spring under the bed and stays in the house, and then finally, uh, in a disguise, escapes, and then before he reaches Confederate lines, uh, he marries his sweetheart, picks her up on route. I understand there was a TV uh, show made of that, which I missed, but that was a fairly uh, uh, fantastic episode, and it's uh, very confusing, too, because Hines' granddaughters has letters that uh, Nancy wrote her father explaining that she had gotten married and, and uh, where they were going and everything, but uh, everything in her letters are entirely different from other material. Hines had written letters or later told stories about it. And the only thing I can figure, which would be uh, more than likely, is that she told her father on purpose everything wrong, simply because, after all, they were living within Union lines. Her husband was a very wanted, much wanted man. And if the letter happened to be intercepted, she didn't want them to, uh, the Federals to know exactly what was going on. Well, in the course of their honeymoon, they're staying in Cincinnati, and again, the Federals are on his trail, and there's one episode where they get to the house and they search it, but Hines had gotten behind a, a closet. There's a blank, um, a um, secret chamber in the closet, and he hides in there. And they search the building, don't find him. Then Hines finally gets to the south again, reports in, they tell him go back to Canada. <laughs> he, uh, he explains it to them that it's fairly hopeless, but he goes, he goes back, and then uh, he evidently gives that up. I lost track of him, actually. I got him across the Chesapeake, which was a, a wonderful trip they rode across, and uh, Chesapeake Bay. He gets up to the um, Canada, and, and then he comes back, and when the war ends, he's recruiting a regiment uh, in Kentucky in April 1865. Then there's that fantastic episode that uh, when he hears of Lee's surrender, he immediately starts 
for Canada again. And when he's up, I think, attempting to cross Lake Michigan or in this area somewhere, he is mistaken for John Wilkes Booth. And he did look like John Wilkes Booth. And they try to stop him, and he has to kick the teeth in of some uh, uh, boat guard or the captain of the boat. He tells us Hines would keep a diary sporadically. And this is one of the few times he, d he did keep a diary. He starts it when the war ends. And he, uh, it's one of these diaries where he would write about 10 words a day and for about 10 days, and he would quit. And this is one of, this is the, one of the biggest episodes in the diary that, that uh, he records. Well, Hines stays in uh, Canada for a year or so. Then uh, he finds out it's all right to come back. He comes back to the South. He lives in Memphis for a while, works on the Memphis Appeal, later and still in existence as a commercial appeal. Then he returns to Kentucky, becomes a lawyer, newspaper editor, eventually becomes a, a local judge and judge of the Court of Appeals. He made an unsuccessful uh, uh, bid for the governorship in, I think it was 87 or 88. He was running against Buckner, incidentally. Buckner won. And uh, then he more or less retires, lives a fairly retired life. He's only 48 or 9. He's in bad health. And he died, I, th I think he was only 59. His father actually outlived him in 18 and 98. And he'd been in bad health. He'd been bedridden for almost a year before that. When I was working on this, there were still a couple of uh, people who'd remembered him in his later years. And uh, they agreed in their descriptions of him. He was a very quiet, soft-spoken, dignified gentleman who uh, rarely talked. You couldn't get him. All the little, of course, these men were, well, both of them were young men, I suppose, in their 20s at the time. But everyone was anxious to talk to him about the war, but he'd never talk about anything. They couldn't get him get anything out of him. And at a time when the United Confederate Veterans was being formed and Morgan's Command was having all these reunions, as far as I know, Hines never, never went to a reunion. He never was much interested and never took part in any of these things. For him, the war had really ended in 1865. And uh, one of the men said that there was always, naturally, uh, an aura of mystery about him and an armor that you really couldn't get through. He was just a nice little soft-spoken old man. And he died in January 1898. He died, uh, uh, or shortly before he died, a very tragic thing happened to him. His, he had been bedridden for about a year, invalid, and his wife was nursing him. And she came in the room and dropped dead uh, in the room about a month before he died. And he couldn't get up out of bed. And he just looked at him. She was lying on the floor. And uh, finally, he picked up something and threw it out the window, and a passerby came in. And, um, and he only lived, this was in December, and he died within uh, a month or so after that. Well, the best summation, I think, of Hines I ever ran across was by a Kentucky newspaperman, M.B. Morton, who knew him, who, when he was writing his memoirs in the 1930s, was commenting on famous Kentucky characters, and he said, Captain Tom Hines was one of the most picturesque and fearless soldiers in the Confederate Army, and that means for all time. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Kaufman, for this exposition on this very unusual man. Now, we always have a question and answer period. <coughs> I'm certain there are some questions that have come up. I know there has in my own mind, yeah. but I would like to ask Elmer Underwood. Yeah. Didn't Hines escape once in the women's clothes? 
maybe this doctor's or is that I think he did. I think he escaped, was wearing women's clothes when he left the doctor's house. I think that was the incident where he wore women's clothes. I was trying to think of that at the time, but I didn't say it because I didn't remember it for sure, but I believe that was the time. Anyone else? Uh, describing the, the prison, were they in, in separate cells or were they all in one large cell? They were in separate cells. Um, when I spoke about the cell block, they were all in, 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 this, uh, in separate cells, but they could go out in this little passageway, which was also within the prison, and evidently there's a brick wall right there within the, within the building itself. Well, weren't the, weren't the uh, cells <coughs> locked at, at night? That, that's the thing Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, how, how are they able to, to get in this one escape cell? Well, this is where the passageway came in. This air passage ran underneath this range of cells. But, but they had to go down. Well, they got down there and they chipped away under it up to the one. This is where Hines, remember I said Hines measured the thing in an argument? Well, this is where he did that. They figured out the exact point. Mm -hmm. Yes? Was he ever charged with taking home any of that money that he had with us? <laughs> uh, some people think he made his own personal fortune that way, but uh, he was very conscious of this, and the Heinz papers, which aren't very voluminous, I think they're only six manuscript boxes, there are these uh, uh, black books in there where he's keeping tabs of the money that was given him. And uh, as far as I can find, he didn't have very much money after the war, so uh, uh, while he was accused of this, I think he actually had, I might be wrong here, I think he actually had some $2,000 in gold at the time the war ended. And when he went up to Canada to live, and he brought his wife up there, but he kept meticulous uh, notes of how he was spending this money. Of course, since there was no Confederate government, he never had to <laughs> turn in a... Nobody anything. Bell? <laughs> Do you have a question? Yes. Uh, why was uh, there no attempt made to apprehend him in the first attempt? Why was there no attempt after he made the first attempts? During the first attempt. Yeah. Well, to be truthful, I can't answer you. Uh, they didn't actually make the attempt. At no time did they actually do anything overt. All of this was simply plans, and they were always canceling it right before it happened. And even at the end, of course, they picked them up before they tried. Uh, Hines was rather slippery. I can't think, I was just trying to think offhand if I can remember exact his actions after each one of these times, and if they made an attempt. Offhand, I don't believe they did. I might be wrong there. And I wouldn't know why they wouldn't, since they didn't. Where'd he get the $900,000 from? Well, he didn't have that. Thompson and Clay had that. Uh, Kaufman, uh, you recall in Basil Duke's book that he speaks of uh, this Judge Hannah that befriended uh, Castleman and helped mm -hmm. him escape. Do you know who Judge Hanna was? Was he of a, was he from Fort Wayne? No, uh, 
the only thing I know about the um, the Castleman business, and this again, the thing that impresses you about all of this <coughs> is, excuse me, is although they were dealing in very, in uh, very dangerous sort of things, that they would use very simple uh, methods. For instance, while uh, uh, Castleman was in prison, Castleman was picked up, I think, in Mattoon, Illinois, uh, after the the either the July or August attempt, but he was picked up before the the November attempt. A planned attempt. And Hines sent him hacksaw blades. And he sent it to him in the back of a Bible. And he sent him this Bible. And in the Bible, he had underlined several packages seek and you shall find a way, or, uh, <laughs> or uh, Esau, or something like that. And he has it very laboriously underlined. And it's the sort of thing that uh, any uh, uh, body, it would seem, you know, would just read this and, and shake it and make it. But uh, I don't know about Judge Hanna. Oh, well, there's another uh, thing I would like. This crossing of uh, Captain Hines into Indiana across the Ohio River, did that have any connection with uh, or have any relation to that other attempt uh, at where they crossed 12 Mile Island to, uh, across the river at 12 Mile Island to create that diversionary effort uh, affair to bring the gunboats up the river so he could uh, cross at uh, Brandenburg. Are those two uh, uh, incidents uh, connected or, or were there two attempts or are you speaking about? Well, Hines went up there. Oh, I've forgotten the exact dates, but he went up there probably two to three weeks before Morgan got there. So it was so far ahead, and he had gotten back. He'd, he'd captured that train, and then he dispersed his command. And this all happened sometime actually before Morgan got there. So I really doubt if he was thinking in terms of diverting this. Well, and there were two crossings there. There were two attempts there, one three weeks before, and then one about three days before. I think Hines actually crossed at Cannelton, though, rather than when he went across. And he got back and was trapped at 12 Mile Island. I think it was 12 Mile Island or Blue Island. <laughs> was it 12 miles? Pete, do you have a question? Um, in regard to Jam what contemporary evidence, or did you find a lot of contemporary evidence in 64? written at the time that the federal authorities and people here knew there was a conspiracy going on, or is much of it based, well, let's say, on Shank's pamphlet, which I think you know about, uh, where he seems to make himself look pretty good and has been suspect. An awful lot of post-war evidence that people knew about. But how much contemporary evidence in November or December 64 did you find that people here knew there was a conspiracy going on? Well, uh, as far as Shanks is concerned personally, there's a wonderful letter in the Heinz papers where Buttersworth, J.F. Buttersworth, who uh, uh, Shanks got drunk and who told him all about it, uh, Buttersworth wrote this letter to Heinz. It wasn't 65, however, but he wrote this letter to him, and it's a long letter saying, I really didn't do that. You know me better than that. Uh, I, wouldn't, I never took a drink in my life. And it goes on and on and on for four pages. And then uh, uh, he lays out what happened and denies it all. And Hines wrote across the bottom, don't believe a word. This is the man who did it. 
and so on. This is the uh, uh, basic primary evidence I have on that. Do you believe Shanks later? Well, when you, when you start dealing with Shanks or what was it, Steiger, Felix Steiger, and those others, um, in a way it's, it's a sort of uh, a whole lot of fairy stories. I mean, they're making a lot of this up. And of course, this is uh, uh, one account you know, believes the whole Copperhead conspiracy was just made up on this. Uh, I think you have to take it with great reservations, any of those accounts. <laughs> Did uh, Heinz have any, uh, uh, get any aid from the Masonic Order that you know of? Not that I know of. I ran across that account, um, I was trying to remember offhand where Heinz and Moon was supposed to have been a Mason, Sergeant Moon, the steward, and there was some talk that maybe this was a Masonic conspiracy. I didn't find any evidence of it. Anyone else? Thank you, Dr. Kaufman. Gentlemen, just before we adjourn. <clears throat>